Well, we began our final church challenge this morning, challenge number six. We've been making our way for quite a while through 1 Corinthians 15, and now we've come, or actually the whole book of 1 Corinthians, and now we come to 1 Corinthians 15, where we begin the final, the sixth church challenge that Paul takes up. And it's, statistically speaking, the greatest of all church challenges. And it's saved for last, and it's the challenge of death. The reality is that Paul himself and all the Corinthians to whom he was writing would be dead in a matter of years and decades, not long after this letter was written to them. And the reality is that all of us, in a matter of years and decades, will be dead as well. So, I was freshly reminded of this just last night when at 8.47 p.m. I received an email from a church in Massachusetts that's connected to the Reformed Baptist Network. This pastor writing says, the church here is overwhelmed with death. Please keep us in prayer. He goes on to write, I don't know how to go about this, but I think it's about time I extended a request for prayer as far as it can go. Pioneer Valley Baptist Chapel is in great time of loss, grief, and sorrow. The following is the timeline of the wake, funeral, graveside services that I have conducted. July 11th, Donald, an older man who trusted Christ just days before his death. July 16th, Jared, a 28-year-old man dying of cardiac arrest. July 23rd, Catherine, a pillar in the church, one of the sweetest women of the Lord I have ever known. She was a light wherever she went. Over 350 people went to her wake. Our church was full to the brim at her celebration of life service. I couldn't even see my notes. My eyes were so full of tears. August 2nd, Eva, the wife of a longtime member who passed away years ago. There was no evidence in her life that she was a believer. August 4th, I conducted the services for my uncle, who I have not been in communication with for many years. However, my dad and aunt asked me to do the services. It is unlikely that my uncle was a believer. August 6th, today I was at the hospital with the daughter and son-in-law of Catherine, the lady who just passed on the 23rd. Their names, I will leave them out for now. She was 19 weeks pregnant and went into labor on Friday night, her birthday, they held their son for about four hours until he died in their arms. Today was full of tears as they passed his body one to another. She was at risk of dying, and she just lost her amazing mom late last month. And then he concludes by once again saying, Our church is overwhelmed with death. Please keep us in prayer. But Christ is our only hope in life and death. Brothers and sisters, death is a great church challenge. And we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters at Pioneer Valley in Massachusetts, especially this week, as they have, over the course of just a matter of weeks, been brought face, and face, face to face again and again with the reality of death. Paul had spent his life and this letter of 1 Corinthians laboring for Christ to be glorified in the Corinthian church. He had challenged their division and their idolatry and their immorality 
and their marriages and their use of Christian liberty and the way they were worshiping. But death and the reality of death, doesn't it make all of what Paul's doing just worthless? Considering that the Corinthian church to whom he's writing is just going to be dead in a matter of years? The chapter alludes to this throughout. In verse 10, he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. In verse 19, he said, If in Christ we are to hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In verse 32, he said, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And in verse 58, he says that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. In confronting the reality of death, in the back of Paul's mind is the thought, is this all vain? Is this for nothing? Is, this, is my life just pitiful and fruitless? But he reminds the Corinthians, and he would remind us this morning, that death is not the ultimate reality. Resurrection is. And because Christ's resurrection is real so is ours, and therefore our labor in the Lord is not in vain, because Christ's labor was not in vain. And that makes all the difference in how we face this final challenge of death. The problem is, is that for, for the Corinthians, and possibly for even us this morning, the Corinthians seem to believe that death was more central than the resurrection. Some had, in fact, gone so far, as we read in verse 12, to deny that the resurrection was even going to happen. Which Paul knew was not appropriate and was actually something that was denying the very heart of the Christian faith. So Paul aims to not just prove that God raised the corpse of the dead Jesus Christ up again, but because of that, God will raise up the corpses of believers who are united to him. So we're going to spend three weeks on this final church challenge in chapters 15 and 16. And in these three final sermons in 1 Corinthians, we will look at how the events associated with the gospel, that is the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, impact the past, the present, and the future as we approach this challenge of death. So we're going to skip around a little bit in the chapter, but we'll hit the whole chapter eventually. This morning what I want to do is talk about how the past work of Jesus on the cross and his death and his burial and his resurrection impact our hope for resurrection now. So we're going to look at the past and what Jesus did and how that connects to our hope of resurrection. Then in the future weeks, Lord willing, we're going to look at that future hope in more detail and also consider how that should impact us daily on a daily basis in our lives now. So how does the past hope of Christ, how does the past work of Christ fuel our hope for resurrection to come? That's where we're headed this morning. And we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses and then verses 20 through 28. We'll come back to those verses that we don't hit a little bit later in the weeks to come, Lord willing. So three points to the sermon this morning. First of all, let's look to the reality of the gospel that Paul describes here in the opening verses. He says in verse 1 that he wants to remind the Corinthians of something. He says, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Now, you might think, okay, Paul, you've talked about a lot of different stuff in this letter. 
You've talked about division, immorality. You've faced one challenge after another. You've confronted one challenge after another. And right now, I think he's sensing as he writes, I don't want you to leave this letter thinking that all the stuff I've written up to you about is the most important thing. Because he says, I'm writing to you, last of all, what is of first importance. <laughs> so he's concluding the letter with what is most essential to us in all the letter. And he's writing the gospel to Christians who already believe it and embrace it and know it, which should tell you something and tell us something, reminding us that we as Christians need the gospel. Paul provides a summary of the gospel that he preached to them in verses 3 and 4. And before we get to the content of the gospel that he explains in verses 3 and 4, we need to see why we need that content. Okay, so look at verse 21. This is why we need the gospel to begin with. For as by a man came death, we'll stop there, verse 22, for as in Adam all die, this is why we need the gospel. By man, by a man has come death. As in Adam, all die. So who's the man he's talking about? Adam. What's the death he's talking about? The consequence of Adam's sin. Adam was told, he and Eve, that in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But he says that because we are born in union with Adam, we are also going to die. Adam is treated as the head of humanity here. He disobeyed God with the results that he's going to die, and those who are connected to him by physical birth will die as well. We die because Adam sinned. Romans 6.23, the wages, what we earn as a result of sin, is death. Romans 5.12, Paul says it similarly. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Romans 5.15, many died through one man's trespass. Verse 17 of Romans 5, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. It says it again in verse 19, through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Paul says it over and over and over and over again that by divine appointment, Adam represented the whole human race that would follow him and his sin therefore affected all human beings, all of us. When Adam sinned, we sinned. When Adam fell, we fell. All people were made liable to sin and the miseries of this life because Adam represented all of us. And in his rep representation of us, he brought condemnation on us. Romans 5, 16 and 18. Through the trespass of one man, there is condemnation for everyone. And you might be saying, that's not fair. That's not fair. Well, hold off, because we're going to get to Christ too. And you might want to change the fairness idea in just a moment. But this, brothers and sisters, is why we need the gospel. Because we're going to die. 
We're all going to die. None of us gets out of Adam. We can't jump out. We can't pray our way out. We can't fix it on our own. We are born physically in the sin that he committed. And then we follow because of having his nature in our DNA written down into every cell at the molecular level. We carry out the sin that we were born with and which will eventually bring us to the grave. And that's why we need the gospel. So what is the gospel that we need? And how does it address this problem? Well, I want you to notice three things that Paul says in verse 3 and 4. First of all, the gospel is God's plan. The gospel is God's plan. You notice in verse 15, uh, chapter one, or 15, verse 1, he says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. And then verse 3, For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he says it again in verse 4, In accordance with the Scriptures. That is, this is written down long before I ever got here, Paul says. I received this from God through the Bible, in the Scriptures, long before I ever got here. I didn't invent this gospel. It was all written down in the Old Testament hundreds of years before it happened. Secondly, the gospel is not only God's plan, it's a historical event. Notice, Christ died. Christ rose again. If that didn't happen historically, so that you could see it with your physical eyes, we have no gospel. We're not talking about a great religious myth here. We're talking about history. We're talking about a real man who lived a real life, died a real death, and experienced a real resurrection. So the gospel is God's plan. The gospel is a historical event. But thirdly, the gospel is a divine achievement. Something happened through the work of Christ that answers the problem that we have. He says he died for our sins. So by achievement, I mean that he died for our sins, which is that there's a design in it. He went to the cross with our sins in his, in his heart, carrying, the, carrying that reality with him so that he could die for it and accomplish forgiveness through it. There's something achieved in his death. It's not a random death. It's designed. So Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day. And in verses 5-7, through seven, it says he appeared to many. That's the reality of the gospel. In fact, Paul says he appeared, notice what he says in verse 5, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500, most of whom are still alive, if you want to go ask them. Paul says, go, go talk to them. There's a lot of people that are still alive. Some have fallen asleep, that is, some have died, but, but many are still alive. You can go talk to them, and you can verify this for yourself, that he, he, he got up out of the grave, he left the tomb. And then, verse 7, he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me. So, that's the reality. That's the gospel content. In these events, we have the basic outline of the gospel, that Christ died, that he was raised, and that there was this historical confirmation by eyewitnesses to that reality. So, we're dealing in the realm of fact. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead. So we're not dealing in myth. We're dealing in historical, verifiable reality. And this gospel, dear ones, is God's answer to our need. Notice again verse 21. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. You see how the work of Christ answers our great problem. We're going to die. There's a way to get out of it. We're going to die. There's a way to come back. We're going to die. There's a way to be raised. We're going to die. There's a way to be resuscitated again. Just as in Adam we all died, so in Christ will we all be made alive. The resurrection of a man to secure the resurrection of believers is necessary because the sin of a man introduced death into creation and into human nature. Now, what does Paul mean when he says this, that in Christ all will be made alive? Does he mean that just as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ? Is he talking about some sort of everybody going to heaven when they die? Does he mean that just as we happened to die in Adam, well, Christ is going to take care of everybody? Well, some have taken it that way. But the reading of the text would not support the universalism that that position claims by suggesting that God will ultimately save all human beings without exception with the result that none will experience eternal conscious torment in hell. No, because what he says is, just as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. But notice the very next verse. It's important to keep reading. Verse 23, then comes the end, sorry, verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. See, we have to belong to Christ. So, we don't belong to Christ the same way we belong to Adam. Okay, we belong to Adam by physical birth. We belong to Christ by spiritual birth. We don't get in Christ the same way that we get in Adam. Adam is different than the way we get into Christ. We get into Adam by being born. We get into Christ by being born again. If we are born in Adam and die in Adam, we die twice. We die physically, we die spiritually. But if we are born in Adam, which we all are, and we live in Christ, we only die once, physically, not spiritually. Jesus came as the new Adam to represent all those who will trust in him alone for salvation. He obeyed, he died, he was resurrected for his people. Just as Adam disobeyed God, with the result that those in him die, so Christ obeyed God, with the result that those who are in him live. So how does a person get out of Adam and into Christ? I'm so glad you asked. Point number two, the response to the gospel. Paul tells us in three specific ways in verses one and two how we get out of Adam and we get into Christ. And kids, teens, young adults, if you've not yet understood what it means to be a Christian... I want you to get this, okay? Understand this. this is, we can understand this. This is not complicated. So look at verses 1 and 2. This is where Paul tells us how the Corinthians received the gospel and how we can respond to it as well. It says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So first of all, if we're going to respond to the gospel, we need to have the reality of the gospel delivered to us, right? 
It comes from God, originating in the Scriptures, but must be delivered by people to other people. It's got to be passed on from person to person. And we've done that this morning. We've spent the whole first part of this sermon talking about what the gospel is. It's being re-delivered to you now. But Paul says it, that, what that delivery is in a couple of different ways in these opening verses. First of all, he says it comes through preaching. Verse 1, I preach to you. Verse 2, I preach to you. Verse 3, I delivered to you. Verse 11, so we preach. Verse 12, Christ is proclaimed. Verse 14, our preaching. Verse 15, our testifying about God. Over and over and over again, he says that we need to get the gospel through having it preached to us. Now, that doesn't mean we come to church and we hear it behind a pulpit, although that is a predominant way in which the gospel is preached. It can happen across a lunch table. It can happen... On a, in a conversation in a car. It could happen by reading a book about the gospel. It can happen by reading the Bible yourself. You have the gospel preached to you. And then, notice, after the gospel is delivered to us, it must be received by us. Look at verse 1. It says, I preached it to you which you received. Paul says, I preached it to you which you received. So to receive means that we accept the gospel as true. We, we acknowledge Christ died not just for sins or for our sins, but for my sins. The gospel moves from being a fact of reality to a personal necessity. You, need, you recognize that's not just a message for others, that's a message for me. I receive it. I believe it. Notice he also says that we believe it. Verse 2 and by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So receiving, believing, same idea. The two words receive and believe show up in John chapter 1, where we read, but to all who did receive him, talking about Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's what it means. To receive is to believe, and to believe is to receive. You can't do one and not the other. So you can't work for it, right? You receive it. It's a gift. It's not something you hear and go, okay, I'm going to try to do better. That's a, not, that's a bad response to the gospel. Never say, I'm going to do better. That implies that what Jesus did wasn't enough. So you say, okay, that is sufficient for me. That is what I need. And you receive it. You believe it. Right? Faith is not introducing something to God that he needs. It's receiving something from God that you need. Faith is simply believing the promise that it applies to you. It's outside of you. That's a historical reality that happened 2,000 years ago before you were ever created. And the gospel is this free offer that comes to you and is received by you and is believed by you on the basis of faith, not by works. The gospel is not a moral improvement plan. The gospel is good news. It's not good advice. You don't start working for God so you can impress Him with how morally worthy you are. You collapse on Christ in dependent trust, knowing that His work alone can make you right with God. That's what it means to receive and believe the gospel. So we preach, we preach it, we receive it, we believe it. Notice thirdly, Paul says we stand on it. 
we take our stand on it. Verse 1 again. Which you received, in which you stand. Now that idea is, we get on the gospel and we rest the entirety of our weight on it. I put this on Facebook a long time ago as my bio or whatever they ask you to put on there to describe yourself. And I quoted from an old hymn that says, On a life I did not live and a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. That is receiving the gospel. Say, if Christ doesn't save me, I'm hellbound. I got nothing else but Jesus. I got nothing else but Jesus. So we take our stand on it. We stand in the gospel. We remain steadfast and immovable, like it says in verse 58. We stand firm in the faith, like it says in verse 13 of chapter 16. We recognize that the gospel message is our only hope, and we don't waver from it. So as we receive and take our stand on this gospel, notice what Paul says in verse 2. We are being saved by it, and by which... You are being saved. So the gospel is the means of saving us from death that was introduced to us by our union with Adam. So Paul provides a condition, though. He says that you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. See, the Corinthians were departing. They were starting to deny fundamental elements of the gospel. They were starting to say, well, the resurrection, it's not that important. Maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. Paul says, you're not holding fast to the gospel, and you won't be saved if you don't believe that. Now, why does he say things like that? Is he threatening them? He's like, is he saying, I know you're a Christian now, but you can lose being a Christian, or I know you're saved now, but you cannot be saved. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the way that we demonstrate that we are saved is that we hold fast to the gospel. That's all he's saying. The saved believe and receive and hold to the gospel and don't depart from it. It's not that the saved are perfect. It's not that the saved never sin. It's that the saved don't rest their hope on anything else but the gospel as it was preached to them. That is their hope. We will be saved by the gospel if we hold fast to the gospel. And Paul says if you don't hold fast to the gospel, it wasn't the gospel's fault. You believed in vain which means your faith was empty. It wasn't in the gospel. It was in something else. So if we don't hold fast to the gospel, our faith in the gospel was counterfeit. It was temporary. It was not lasting. It wasn't the real deal. So that's our response to the gospel. We are being saved as the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit assures us and strengthens us to keep holding on to and not wavering from the gospel holding on to it. So that's our response to the gospel. We hear it preached, we receive it, we believe it, we take our stand on it. Thirdly and finally, what are the results from the gospel? So we've seen the reality of the gospel, Christ's life, death, burial, resurrection. We've seen our response to it, that we, are, we hear it, we believe it, we receive it, we take our stand on it. What results from that? What happens as a result of that? Here's where we get to the really, really good news. What happens as a result of receiving the gospel? Three more things. First of all, forgiveness. Forgiveness. One of the most precious gifts, and we're going to get to this verse a little bit more. I'm going to jump out of our main text that we're considering. I want you to just look back at verses 17 and 18. Verses 17 and 18, chapter 15. Paul says, arguing 
kind of logically that if Christ hasn't been raised, what's true? He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, that is empty, worthless, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. But then verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised. So what does that mean? Well, if Christ has in fact been raised, we aren't in our sins anymore. (laughs) We are no longer in our sins. Instead of remaining in our sins, we are free from the power and the penalty of our sins. And while we aren't yet free from sin's presence in our lives, we aren't still in our sins. There's a huge difference between sin in us and us in sin. While sin is still in us because of Christ's death and resurrection and our union with Him, we are not still in our sin. Now, how is the resurrection connected to our forgiveness? Isn't the death of Jesus what takes away our sin because He bore our sins and took our judgment on the cross? Yes. But the connection to the resurrection is very important too, and this should give you great comfort and hope as a Christian. Romans 4.25 puts it like this. Christ was handed over to death on account of our transgressions, but he was raised on account of our justification. Now this means that by his death, he paid the penalty for our sins and he purchased our forgiveness. But since the achievement of the cross was so complete and the work was so decisive, God raised Jesus from the dead to validate that he had received his sacrifice of, for our forgiveness and to vindicate and celebrate the work of salvation. So this means that our forgiveness is as certain as the resurrection of Jesus. And that's the great hope because if Christ was raised, my sins really are covered. My sins really are gone. My sins will not meet me in the day of judgment because God verified it, put his stamp on it when he raised Christ from the dead. See, if Christ would have died and been put in the grave, and not been raised from the dead, we would have reason to question whether God accepted that payment. Right? But because He raised Him from the dead, we have no question whether that was acceptable to God or not. His death was fully sufficient to cover all of our sins, and therefore, dear ones, we have been forgiven in Christ. Our sins are no longer, though they stick to us and bother us and and seem to nip at our heels and plague us throughout our life, we are not in them. They are dead. So we are forgiven. But secondly, we get a changed life. We get a changed life. Notice how Paul talks about himself in verse 8. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, that is, he wasn't born during the ministry of Jesus, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul's giving a little bit of his testimony here. He's saying, I don't deserve to have this privilege of being an apostle of Jesus Christ, because if you'll remember from Acts chapter 8, I was kind of overseeing the stoning of Christians. I was trying to stop the church from advancing. And I was giving my okay to Stephen's martyrdom. But by the grace of God, because it wasn't because he earned it for sure. Look at verse 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. He's, what is he saying there? He's saying, you, you, you knew my, I've told you about my previous life, Corinthians. You knew what I was like. You knew that I was a persecutor of the church 
but God changed me. And on the contrary, he says, when you put me up against the other apostles, even though I'm the least of the apostles and unworthy to be called an apostle, I work harder than any of them. Now, is he saying that as a boast? No, he's saying that as a testimony to the grace of God. He's saying, you want to know how alive Jesus is? He takes people like me and transforms them. He makes someone who worked so hard to kill the church work harder than anybody to grow the church. That's what Jesus does. He transforms people. And so Paul says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. He says that twice to make sure he's not being heard as boasting. He's humble here. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. How can he be boasting? He's not boasting about anything. He says, and then he says the grace of God twice. So his claim that he works harder is not some sort of claim like, see, I'm the best. No, he says, see what the grace of God does. Whether it was I or they, other apostles or me, verse 11, so we preached and so you believed. He says, behold the changed life that comes through the gospel. Now, I just want to reinforce to us that every single challenge that Paul has addressed in this letter so far, all the previous five challenges that we've talked about, he has answered with the gospel. He has told them that the way you fix this is with the gospel. Now, let me just remind you briefly, what about division? The first challenge we took up, right, in chapters 1 to 4. Remember, the Corinthians were going on and on about how these great and gifted teachers were in the Corinthian culture and how they were trying to be like them. And Paul was just this weak, mousy speaker who couldn't really deliver a powerful sermon that much. And, and he's not compared to what these Corinthian speakers are. And the, the church is starting to divide over teacher preferences and who they like most and all that. And then he holds up in front of them and he says, Christ crucified is the power and the wisdom of God. How did you come to Christ? It wasn't because somebody preached a great sermon to you. It's because you heard that message and the Holy Spirit acted on you. It was the message that changed you, not the messenger. That's how he deals with division. And then he said, what about the second issue? Immorality in chapters 5 and 6. Remember they were tolerating incest and committing temple prostitution and all kinds of sexual sin. And he comes to them and he says, Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. You're a new lump. You're new. You're, get out that old leaven. Your body matters. God's going to raise it up from the dead. You're a member of Christ. God owns your body. Jesus bought it with a price. He applies the gospel to them. What about marriage? Well, he says to these Corinthians who were concerned about marriage and singleness and how that all fit in God's plan, he says, lead the life the Lord's assigned to you. If you were married when you were saved, stay married. If you were single when you were saved, don't pursue a spouse. Though if you can have an opportunity to get married, get married. But only in the Lord. Again, he applies the truth of the gospel to them. Christian liberty, verses eight, chapter 8 through 11. Remember, they were eating food, sacrificed to idols, and they weren't being concerned about how that was affecting other members of the church. What does he say to them? Don't make your brother stumble for whom Christ died. Again, applying the gospel to them. He says, when you look at your brother, think of somebody that Christ died for. And don't cause them to have to question their trust in the gospel because they're not seeing that change in you. What about worship? The one we've been considering for quite some time. Remember the Corinthians were wearing head, the head coverings that were demonstrating to the Corinthian culture that they were 
like them and there was uh, all this selfishness going on in the worship service over spiritual gifts and how they were going to be used. And, and Paul just says, we exist for other people. We exist to build up the church just as Christ gave his life to build up the church. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And the husband-wife relationship is to reflect the father and Christ relationship with reference to authority and submission. And your thoughtlessness at communion, you're forgetting why we have communion to begin with. This is the Lord's Supper. This is his broken body. This is his shed blood. This is a unifying thing. Don't despise it. Value it. Pursue love. So again, he just comes again and again and again to showing the reality of the gospel and how it applies to these believers. Because the gospel changes us. Paul knew it, and Paul knew it for the Corinthians. If the gospel doesn't change this about the Corinthians and about us, nothing else will. So first, first benefit, first result from the gospel, forgiveness. Second benefit, change life. Third and finally, and here's where I'll conclude, eternal life. Eternal life with Christ. Look at verse 18. Paul again says, then those, if Christ hasn't been raised, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, all your friends that you love that were believers, all the other church members that you were friends with, don't expect to ever see him again. They've perished. They're done. But because Christ has been raised from the dead, what is Paul's implication of that? They haven't perished. They're alive. They're with Christ now. And after they died, they were more alive than they ever were when they were still alive. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, here's the good news, that because we are united with the resurrected Christ, we will live forever. We will live the way Christ lives. We will enter into the joy of our master, but the news gets even better. Just as Christ has been raised from the dead, as believers, we are assured that we will be raised from the dead. Now, you say assurance. How, do, how are we assured here? I get it, Pastor Mark. You said we can be assured of our forgiveness because Christ was raised, but how are we assured that our bodies will be raised because Christ has been raised? I want you to notice. Notice what Paul says in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 23, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. What's that first fruits language? Well, what's first fruits? Well, that's the first sample of a crop to get a look at what its nature and quality will be for the rest of the crop, right? You look at the first fruits, you pull the crop, and you look, okay, this is probably going to be what's going to happen with the rest of the crop. That, wow. And if Christ is the first fruits, and we are what's to come, how good is our resurrection going to be? It's going to be really good. See, brothers and sisters, many of you are facing great physical struggles in your body, in your soul, in your mind. And I want you to know that there's nothing you're facing now that a good resurrection won't fix. You may face it for a number of more years, but it's nothing that a good resurrection won't fix. Your body will not be as it is. Your mind will not be as it is. Your soul will not be as it is. The ways you struggle now will not always be the way it's going to be. Christ's resurrection body gives us a foretaste of what our resurrection bodies will be like. 
He's the first of the crop to be harvested, so to speak. And we are the remainder who will one day receive resurrection bodies. And as we'll see next week, just like his. Our resurrection at the end of history is the fullness of the harvest that Christ will be bringing in. Notice when this will take place. Verse 22, at his coming. Our resurrection will happen at the coming, at the return of Jesus. Then something will occur, he says. Then comes the end. The apostle tells us when Jesus hands over the kingdom to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, verse 24. So how far does the reign of our risen Christ extend? It goes everywhere. Every rule, every authority, every power. Verse 25, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Christ is coming to conquer all. Jesus is now in this age putting all his enemies under his feet. Every rule, every authority, every power will be conquered. And our great enemy, death itself, will meet its death. God's supreme authority over everything will be eternally established, never to be threatened again. And the last enemy will be defeated. The victory will be won. The church will be redeemed. And the Lord Jesus himself, exalted in majesty, will turn to the Father and give him and the kingdom to him. And then comes the end. And then comes the beginning. The beginning of God and his people reigning forever and ever together. So the final focus is all praise and blessing and honor and glory to God for all that he has done, which is why Paul says God will be, and may be at that point, will be all in all. Everywhere we look will be God. Everywhere. In a world where we can't hardly look anywhere and see God, unless we're consciously, deliberately, intentionally thinking of him. There will eat, sleep, and breathe the presence of God in our resurrected bodies under the Lordship of Christ in blissful and eternal joy forevermore. So if you're here this morning and that doesn't whet your appetite for a better life than the one you're living now, I don't know what would. Because you might be having a great life right now. Young people, you got the whole life in front of you and you got dreams and you got desires and you've got longings, and you've got purposes, and there's things you want to do, but I don't want to spoil or pop your bubble too much, but you're going to die. Right? You might have a great 85 years, and you're going to die. And people typically die as they've lived. Don't think, oh yeah, at that point, I'm really going to want Christ. When you've pushed him away, and made your wanter less and less and less over the course of your life, don't presume upon the grace of God. Today is the day of salvation. And the greatest way that you can ensure that you won't waste your life is to make sure you'll have one in eternity. And so come to Christ. He's not a killjoy. He's the giver of eternal joy. He's not trying to take anything from you that wouldn't kill you in the end. He's not trying to take anything from you that wouldn't leads you to hell in the end. He only wants your eternal and everlasting good, even if that includes, as we've thought about this morning, suffering and pain and difficulty in this life. It will all be yielding a great harvest of eternal joy because God continues to keep records on his children. Everything that he takes, he will repay. 
Don't we see that in the book of Job? In this life, Job was repaid, even though he faced great suffering. We're not promised a physical repayment in this life, but we are promised that an eternal weight of glory, far surpassing anything that we experienced in this life, to which we look back and go, yeah, that whole battle with cancer for 35 years was a light and momentary affliction. That's, that's what we're talking about when compared to the eternal weight of glory. So have comfort, brothers and sisters. Christ has been raised from the dead, and we will surely be raised with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that there's a gospel that exists. We don't deserve a gospel. We deserve death and hell because if we were Adam, we would have done the same thing. And some, in our sin, we can sometimes say, well, that's not fair. How does... How does, Christ, how does Adam's sin get counted to me? I didn't do anything. But at the same time, we get the glorious good news of how does Christ's righteousness get counted to me? I didn't do anything. Lord, we thank you for the arrangement that you've had. You don't just treat us as individuals. You treat us as in union with either the first Adam or the second Adam. So Lord, thank you that the vast majority of people in this room are in union with the second Adam. Encourage them in that reality. But for friends here who are still in the first Adam, who still have yet to transfer their hope and trust away from themselves and put it completely standing, resting completely on Christ and receiving and believing in him. May they do that even now as we sing together. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.